0: Back on Young Turks, okay, we've got a couple of great guests for you guys, so let's get to it. Joining me now is Barry Levine and Monique Uh They are both accomplished journalists that have worked at or had been published at New York Times, Guardian, Washington Post, Financial Times, HuffPost. In fact, Barry was named HuffPost Game Changer Award winner in 2010. Uh, and now they are the authors of All the President's Women, Donald Trump and the Making of a Predator. Uh, so Barry and Monique, welcome to the Young Turks.
1: Hi. Hi, thank you for having us
0: on. Yeah, really appreciate you guys coming on. So uh, you have broken a lot of news in this uh, book. Uh, apparently there are new allegations of women that uh, Donald Trump has at a minimum harassed. How many new allegations?
1: Well, there's 43 new allegations in total that we found over the course of a year of reporting. And this um, obviously catalogs beyond the two dozen that um, came forward in 2016 during the election. So, you know, the, the numbers now are getting up there into, you know, Weinstein and uh, Cosby and uh, Epstein type numbers. So I, I did the math on it. That's 67
0: allegations against the president. So, how did you find the new 43?
1: Well, the 43 um, came through uh, uh, myself and Monique and two other journalists who joined our little team. Lucy Osborne and Whitney Clegg. Uh, Whitney was from CNN's investigative unit. Lucy did a documentary for the BBC on Trump and women. And the, um, the four of us uh, worked over the course of a year going off in different directions. Monique, um, uh, in addition to um, conducting interviews, also worked on the narrative while I was reporting from the field. And uh, you know we turned over stones. We turned um, uh, over tips, and uh, it led us to um, women who brought new uh, stories of um, inappropriate behavior. Uh, forward, um, and I have to tell you, it was it was difficult. I mean, you're dealing with women who experienced um, um, sexual uh, misconduct, and uh, one woman who I focused on, Karen Johnson, um, who was uh, groped uh, and, and attacked at Mar-a-Lago during a New Year's Eve party. Uh, it took it took two months just uh, of working with her uh, before she felt comfortable in terms of coming forward. So uh, I do feel that. Uh, Um, It was an accomplishment, the women who did come forward uh, and worked with us, uh, were were certainly brave and courageous to uh, give us their accounts.
0: So there's so many cases here, we can't possibly go over all of them. But Monique, I wanted to ask you about the beauty pageants and how Donald Trump used that sometimes to prey on women. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, we saw early in the early in the 90s that he have, he liked young models young pretty women he would go backstage at fashion shows and things like that and eventually he realized there were easier ways to get young women and he bought a beauty pageant or uh, a, a package of beauty pageants and he would exercise what he told Howard Stern what was what he believed was his owner's prerogative and he would just walk in backstage a lot of the beauty pageant contestants talk about how he would sort of size them up as though they were cattle almost and you know he really Objectified them and made them feel dirty and used.
0: Um, you know, I don't remember all the beauty pageants he owned. Uh, I thought there was a story about a teen pageant. Is that? I, but you guys tell yeah. me.
2: So he had Miss Teen USA, Miss USA, and Miss Universe. That's correct. Yes, it was one company that had these three different pageants.
0: But he also did he, he, also, he also go into the into the backstage uh, of Miss Teen USA's?
2: Exactly. Okay. He did that, he did that at, the, at the beauty pageants, and he also would walk backstage at fashion shows where the models traditionally are very young. So he was, you know, he had a habit of doing that. And that's one of the things we saw throughout the book is these patterns would emerge. He, he engaged in the same, same kinds of behavior for decades.
0: So Barry, you guys write about an incident at a private Manhattan sex club um, uh, with a, a teenage girl. Uh, what happened there?
1: Well, there's no question, it was maybe the most disturbing uh, fresh allegation that we were able to put forward. Uh, And as the father of a teenage daughter, it was uh, particularly troubling uh, for me to report it. Uh, This uh, happened in the early 1980s. Uh, It involved a uh, mob run um, private brothel um, in Times Square uh, here in New York. Uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, was a client of this uh, particular brothel, according to the whistleblower, a man named John Tino who managed the club for a major mob boss here in New York. And um, after seeing this particular uh, porn star on a regular basis, uh, Donald Trump asked this man's boss um, if he could uh, arrange a threesome. Um, But instead of having another porn star of the era Participate. uh, Donald Trump allegedly asked um, for a uh, a much younger uh, woman um, to uh, to be involved. In fact, he asked for a um, um, an underage uh, uh, girl. Uh, What ended up happening was uh, the the mob boss um, um, somehow recruited um, a young woman for this um, sexual encounter. Um, She showed up at the club. Uh, Donald Trump was there uh, before the um, encounter happened. uh, The porn star asked the woman um, or or girl how old she was and she said she was a teenager. Um, And then the three of them went into the private room. Now our whistleblower witnessed the encounter on a closed circuit television. Uh, There was a hidden camera in all the rooms. The reason being is that these women Uh, who participated at this brothel uh, were the porn stars of the day uh, back in the early 1980s. And because they made movies and so forth, um, the mob boss had this man watch in a locked room on a closed circuit television monitor to make sure that the porn stars were not beaten up by the men who were paying for sexual relations with them.
0: So is allegation here that he had sex with an underage girl?
1: We're reporting in the in the book that uh, Trump engaged in a threesome with a uh, porn a female porn star who was of age and a uh, woman who um, described herself as a teenager to the porn star.
0: Hmm, okay, so all we know is that it's a teenager, not necessarily underage. Well, we've
1: because we I, look,
0: under- I don't want the audience to get it wrong. Like yes. it's teenagers no. teenager he's a grown man. But it does matter in terms of the law. Yes, it
2: does. We were unable to locate the girl, so we can't say with any certainty how old she was at the time.
1: And I felt uh, felt uncomfortable going beyond that in the book because we have the account of the uh, whistleblower, uh, John Tino, who um, I interviewed. dozens of times over the course of uh, of many months in terms of um, putting his account together and cooperating his account uh, with uh, um, some sources uh, uh, who were in the mob and also in the porn, uh, porn business in Times Square that was, uh, as I said, mob controlled at the time. John Tino describes this woman, I should point out, as looking uh, something like uh, Jodie Foster in the movie Taxi Driver. Uh, That movie, that famous movie uh, at that time in the early 80s uh, was only a few years old. And um, when I asked him um, what this uh, um, young woman looked like, he described her as uh, as uh, uh, looking like uh,
2: uh, a
1: Jodie Foster type character from Taxi Driver.
2: But again, this is speculation. We couldn't track down the girl, so we couldn't corroborate her age in any definitive manner.
0: All right, Monique, um, you wrote a book called God and Country, How Evangelicals Have Become America's New Mainstream. Um, so help me make sense of this. Um, Here's a guy who's been accused by 67 different women of some sort of sexual impropriety. And yet the evangelicals who claimed that they were the party of family values and that was the main thing they cared about, love this guy. How do you explain that?
2: Yeah, I think there's a cynicism here. So I, early on, before he was elected, I called an old source of mine, a source from my first book and i said what are you guys doing this guy is the there's nothing about him that that indicates that he's an evangelical why are you supporting him and he said because of the judges he's going to give us the judges we want and in fact that's exactly what trump has done he has appointed more conservative judges to the bench than any other president in recent memory i mean he's just he got an office and it was a railroad of judges on all different levels of the federal bench, which, of course, that, you know, those lower federal courts, are the, they feed up to the Supreme Court. So they're very happy with them because of that. You know, that's the sort of political reason women and men. But, you know, for this book, I, I focused on women because it is baffling to understand how women can excuse this behavior and, and ignore it. And you get a variety of responses. Some of it is You know, God uses imperfect vessels and he is fighting for us. So what he does in his personal life is not relevant or doesn't matter to me. A lot of people said, oh, they believe he's changed. That was a long time ago. You know, and and many other evangelical women simply say these women are lying. They've come forward for political gain or political reasons. They're being paid by the Democrats. You hear all kinds of rationalizations. But they're, you know, that's the word. They're rationalizing it because he has given them, you know. He moved the capital. He recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. He's given them judges. He's helped roll back abortion laws on a political front. He's fighting for them in a way that even self-avowed evangelical presidents just didn't.
0: Yeah, look, I, this is my opinion. I don't want to put on Barry or Monique, but I, I want the audience to understand: evangelicals don't care about Jews at all. Uh, They care about Israel because it leads to Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ, in their opinion. So don't mistake it for some sort of kinship with uh, Jewish Americans. Uh, Most of the right wing conspiracy theories end with the Jews controlling the world. And so uh, none of this is about family values or supporting religious points of view at all. Any rationalization you need. To get to the results, political results they want. Barry, I gotta ask you one last question. Uh, So you got 67 women uh, with varying uh, degrees of sexual harassment to sexual assault, Uh, yet it's almost certain that there are gonna be no consequences, right?
1: Listen, this is a a guy who has escaped um, a serious consequence uh, his entire life. Uh, The only active lawsuit that is present right now involves Summer Zervos who's a former contestant um, um, from The Apprentice. Uh, She has an ongoing defamation lawsuit against Donald Trump uh, based on the fact that Donald Trump had repeatedly called her a liar after she came forward in 2016 as part of the original group of allegations. Ah, uh, he slammed her repeatedly, uh, you know, day in and day out uh, for uh, weeks on end, uh, and it's very well documented. And um, while she's not suing on the um, the, the sexual allegations, uh, she is suing him on defamation. Now, whether uh, that that case, the um, uh, Trump's attorneys have uh, attempted to suppress that suit and have it thrown out, so far it's it's making its way slowly through the system and we'll see if, you know, if there's any reckoning um, on that particular case. However, for the most part, um, um, in the the various cases that have come forward, um, even most recently, uh, the case involving Jean Carroll, a a, um, a writer here in New York, who made a rape um, allegation against Donald Trump. Uh, The statute of limitations in so many of these cases, uh, because these cases are so old, um, have, have gone by the wayside. Um, but we'll, we'll see, I mean, the, the reckoning may be in the court of public opinion. This is a man who wants to run or is running, you know, for reelection despite the impeachment inquiry. Um, you know, I, I do feel that this book is important because, you know, for somebody who wants to be re- reelected, who makes policy for, for women and men, it's important that the public has Complete transparency in terms of his actions involving this character. So, you know, and I am hoping that uh, other media who have the <coughs> who have the resources to uh, follow up the reporting here will continue to work at um, bringing forward more allegations before the 2020 election. All
0: right. The book's called All the President's Women: Donald Trump and the Making of a Predator. Uh, Monique and Barry, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. Thank no you. Problem.
0: All right, when we come back, we're gonna talk to a reporter about Elijah Cummings and his legacy. And also, has a really interesting story about a program that Julian Castro is proposing on criminal justice. So don't miss it. We'll be right back. All right, back on the Young Turks. So by the way, like I said in the post game, we're gonna do a couple things. We're gonna talk about Tommy Lahren, yeah, you know, a little bit of Duncan, okay, Donald Trump said her a present. It was a prep material before she debates Anna at Politicon, I don't know, (laughs) tyd.com slash join to find out. Uh, And we're also gonna talk about the movie uh, Joker, I have very strong uh, thoughts about that. Um, Anyway, that's in a little bit, I got another great guest for you guys right now. Joining me now is Jamil Smith, he's a senior writer for Rolling Stone, great to have you in studio. Appreciate that, thank you. Yeah, yeah, uh, all right, uh, let's do it. So uh, you wrote about Elijah Cummings and you said he was not done, what do you mean by that? Here's what I meant by that. He died at 68, which,
3: you know, for frankly, I think a lot of folks would say is pretty early. And I thought at the time, I'm thinking, well, 68 for black men in America, that's actually a pretty long life. And I'm thinking, you you know, a lot of people might say that's pessimistic, but I think, frankly, racism kills a lot of folks in this country. And what I mean by that is that it's provable. Science has said, you know, studies have proven that. Racism has a deleterious effect on our health. You know, it, it, it ages us more, more quickly. It you know heightens our blood pressure, so on and so forth. There's a lot of you know ways that it is measurable, that it has effects on our health, and we have got to you know really take that into account. We've got to really talk, talk about how racism actually you know is killing us. It's not just having an effect on on our society. It's actually you know. You know Frankly, let me look at my beard. I mean, it's, it's having an effect on—it's <laughs> having an effect on on us uh, uh, on physically as well as mentally, and it's it's taking a toll on us day by day.
0: Yeah, uh, I hear you. Uh, so. I know that African Americans have a lower life expectancy, but yes. do you have the numbers saying anxiety? In your piece, I think, mean, was it 71? I mean, hell. I mean, Elijah Cummings even cited it himself a few years ago. He, when he
3: was, you know, there was speculation around 2015 that he was going to run for Senate. And he said, when, you know, around that time that, hey, you know, black men are only expected to live around till about 71. And, you know, why am I, basically, why am I running for Senate if I'm going to, you know, only going to be living until 71? Mm-hmm. and that is it may sound pretty dark but it's realistic you yeah. know and so he's he's saying look i'm going to serve my community the best way that i can and i'm going to you know i'm going to be in this position uh you know in the house and i'm just going to basically essentially serve these 2 year terms and why am i going to be in a 6 year job if i don't know if i'm going to live that is to me he's understanding the realities of america Yes, he's maybe you know calling his own death, but it's 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 a sad realization. He he's I think in a lot of ways he's very prophetic. Earlier this year, he was talking about the census, and he said, "Look, I may not be around to un, you know to see this all the way through, but you know we've got to understand that this country, it, we've got to essentially, you know, we've got to you know really you know we've got to hold this country to account." Martin Luther King, in his last speech, said, "You know, we have got to essentially hold this country to account for, you know, to say that this country's got to be true to what it said on paper." Mm-hmm. And that is what Elijah Cummings' life was all about. And that essentially is what I think that he's—he's not—he wasn't done with that task. And that's what's now up to us to—we've got to, we've gotta, you know, essentially pick it up from where he left off.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a history of African American leaders calling their own death because Martin Luther King also said. Uh, you know, I might not make it with you, uh, but I've seen the the glory of the coming of the Lord. Yes, and uh, and so he, in a sense, he called his own death and very, very uh, famously and unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you know, one more thing about that. Uh, speaking of papers. Wasn't Representative Cummings signing some papers almost literally at his deathbed? Yes, he was working you know, as his
3: widow, who is the head of the Maryland Democratic Party, Mary, Maya, sorry, Maya Rockymore Cummings said that he was basically working on his deathbed, signing memos, signing subpoenas and memos, basically signing subpoenas that said, you know, basically he was trying to subpoena Ken Cuccinelli. And the acting ICE director, they were actually going to, you know, testify willingly, but that testimony was was postponed. And then, then he was signing memos that was condemning, you know, the, the immigration policies, these draconian policies of the Trump administration. So he was working to his death to make this country a better place. May we all have such a legacy.
0: Yeah, no, no, I think that's particularly moving and gives you a good sense of how heroic he was. Mm-hmm. That as he's fighting for his life, he's like, no, no, I gotta have justice. Yeah. So he's signing these papers to make sure that he seeks justice, even from the deathbed. And unfortunately, he did die within that twenty-four hours. Indeed. Yeah. Um, well, it's, I think white men are what seventy-five is the average life expectancy. Yeah. I mean, so, the, it's in the, that ballpark. The expectancy
3: is rising uh, from the time that you know, I guess, in twenty fifteen that uh, uh, that Cummings was quoting that, that the expectancy is rising for black men a little bit. It is the gap is narrowing slightly. However. Um, it really varies from city to city. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to Chicago, the gap is much wider between black men and white men. And white men, so you know, it really depends on where you are. It could vary from
0: zip code to zip code. Yeah, look, even if it's a three-year gap, that's a big gap. I mean, you want to talk about white privilege? Right? Yeah. And I, and that's the thing about white privilege that's so maddening because you don't see it if you're white, right? That's like people miss the point of it, right? It's not like you're, it means you're rich, it doesn't mean <laughs> that you got everything in the world. It just means you don't know how bad other folks have it. <laughs> you literally live three years longer than the average African American, if I remember the numbers right. And so that's uh, the, just a side note there, but important for people to know. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's talk about Julian Castro. He's got a new yes. uh, program out, uh, he talked to you about it. Uh, what is it uh, that, that he's seeking?
3: It's a sweeping, I uh, say, social justice plan. I think you know, calling it a criminal justice plan is a bit limiting. Uh, it's a really sweeping social justice plan that he calls the first choice plan. Uh, really, so named because I think he thinks uh, second chance, uh, second chance plans are, uh, you know, really second chances are what we hand out to. Um, the formerly incarcerated who are, you know, coming out of jail. We always think about second chances. He's saying, "Look, we don't even give these people first chances in life."
0: Mm, okay, you know, that's why. They- and
3: so he's saying, "Look, this is my first chance plan. We're trying to remake society uh, for people, so we make sure that we, we have prevention, not prisons." That's his first point. Uh, he's trying to, you know, make a restorative justice system, which. I take a little bit of an issue with the naming of that, I'll get to that in a minute. And then he's trying to make basically a holistic environment for uh, people who get out of prison. So he's trying to make sure that they have a, you know, he actually calls it a second chance center. So they have a one stop shop for people who get out of prison, so that they know where to go. And so they know basically how to essentially reintegrate themselves into
0: society. Okay, and so why do you have an uh, issue with the restorative justice part?
3: Because it's not properly defined. Mm-hmm. He, I know. When I spoke to Secretary Castro, he understands the, the the definition of restorative justice, which is essentially where you bring the the harmed party together with the offender, and you bring them together to essentially have a reconciliation. This is this is an approach that's worked in communities like Lawndale a community in Chicago. They have a court there that's been very successful. It's a, you know, it's an approach that's been championed by people like Adam Foss, former prosecutor. These are people, you know, who are championing a really different approach to justice that isn't punitive. It's restorative, and so when you have restorative justice, that model, it's it's, it's something that's building. It's not something that's punishing. Now they name this restorative justice. There's a lot of good things in their approach. You know, such as legalizing marijuana and things like that, that are kind of standard, you know, Democratic boilerplate at this point, but they're not really restorative justice. And I think that that name gets thrown around Democratic politics a little bit. It's kind of a nice catchphrase, and people aren't really defining it properly. So I think this is more of a problem with Castro's policy folks rather than the candidate himself.
0: Okay, let me ask you a controversial question Should Donald Trump get credit for criminal justice reform? Because he did sign it. I don't think so. Because he hasn't
3: one, he tried not to fund it. Mm-hmm. And number two, as Political reported, I think it got buried a little bit through all this impeachment mess, but Political recently reported that he dropped that as a political push. I think that, you know, people really aren't talking about this. He realized that his own base doesn't like seeing people get out of prison. His-
0: well, black <laughs> people get out of prison. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they they don't mind it when it's about opioids and it's uh, in West Virginia or Kentucky.
3: Well, they also may not mind when they see an Alice Johnson or Matthew Charles as mascots, essentially, at mm-hmm. a State of the Union, smiling and being pointed at by the president. But when they see a flood of people getting out of prison, you know, when this this thing actually becomes active and functional, then they may say, "Wait a minute, this isn't a political winner for." his base. So the president has actually backed away from this and it very quietly. And so yeah. you know, frankly, I don't think he should get very much credit for it at all.
0: So we covered the story about how he was yelling at his aides and even thought his son-in-law Jared Kushner was an idiot for getting him to sign <laughs> it. So I mean, if you wanna, like, I, I wanna be fair. And so I think it was a good bill, and I give credit to Cory Booker, Van Jones, and all the people who push it. So in a sense, I almost wanted to give credit to Donald Trump, it'd be the only thing I'd ever give him credit for. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't want the credit. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, let me put it this way.
3: I was in the room at a criminal justice summit the day that Van Jones learned that Donald Trump was supporting the bill. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was. Van Jones was on stage interviewing Kim Kardashian. The day that you know he learned that he was supporting the bill, and I think you know Van, to his credit, was happy that Trump was supporting it. I can understand why he was pleased. That being said, it's a, it's literally named the first step act. It's the first step. There's many steps yet to come, and I think that we make a mistake congratulating either him or ourselves by taking a first step and thinking that we're done.
0: Yeah, no, look, to be fair to Van Jones, Cory Booker, and all other people that were involved, and even Jared Kushner, who did push for it. They're not saying we're done. I mean, Jared Kushner might say we're done. Well, okay. I don't know. Donald <laughs> Trump is saying that we're done. Uh, of He's course, saying, Donald yeah. Trump is saying, I wish I hadn't done it in the first place. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but I know that Booker and Banjos aren't saying we're done.
3: Right, And and but the Donald Trump is saying, I did criminal justice reform and is acting like it's all over.
0: It's over, yeah. We Hey yeah. guys, don't worry about it, we solved it. It's <laughs> right, <over>. exactly. <laughs> it's all over. Okay, guys. you can rest easy now. We're done. You can live longer now. It's gonna <laughs> be okay. All right, Jamil Smith, senior writer for Rolling Stone. Thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Guys, we'll be right back with the post game that I promised you guys, tyt.com slash join to become a member and get that post game, we'll see you there.